Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Thanks for joining us here on the Naked Gaming Podcast with me, Chris Barrow. We're back this month with another episode of Monkey Island Discs. That's where we talk to people about their favourite games and gaming memories. And I'm delighted to say today's guest is the video game writer Rihanna Pratchett, who's worked on huge games that you've probably played like Heavenly Sword and the reboot of Tomb Raider. She's also the daughter of Terry Pratchett, who himself was a huge fan of games. We'll come on to that later. But now we start off with a classic console. It was the Sinclair ZX81, the very old, very boxy uh, black and white machine. And it was a game called Mazogs, and I think I was about six. And my dad had brought it home because he was very into electronics and robotics and things like that. And uh, he showed it to me and I think I was quite scared initially um, because of the monsters in it and things like that. And it was like it was little pixelated crabby creatures going going around a maze like this. And you were a little pixelated person. But you got to pick up a pixelated sword and fight back against the monsters. And and I think it was that sense of, um, you know, that that. Of you know justice and revenge, yeah. I could have on these monsters that 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 um, kind of hooked me in, and I watched a lot of Conan, so I was big on anything that had a sword, um, and it it sort of started from there, and I got a lot of my my father's hand me down machines. Uh, his hand-me-down games and we used to play games together so um, I would sit next to him with the graph paper and he would sort of drive the game and I would navigate and I would draw the maps because this was long before there were um, maps in the game or even maps in the box so you you kind of had to do your own and sometimes there were really big games like Head Over Heels which always had this massive isometric game huge huge lands um alien eight night law where you you turned into a werewolf at, uh, at night and you could only solve certain puzzles that way um and then i sort of carried it on with the the little girl who moved in next door so uh she was eight and i was 11 and we were playing things like leisure suit larry for example oh, wow. back then it was gate <laughs> it was gatekeep uh, it was kind of gatekeepered as a 18 title yes. but they didn't know how to do it then so they would ask you are you 18 questions but they were about quite involved things like history and the American political process so we ended up having to look things up in books so we could get into a video game um and we learned the, the word prophylactic from Larry, oh, wow. which was an important important person uh, important thing for a young person to know about uh we learned the word falafel from <laughs> Com- conquest of Camelot um and this was like I lived in Somerset um in the uh you know deepest darkest Somerset like it was a sneeze of a village like we had a pub and that was it there was no there wasn't even a one horse to be a one horse town it was that tiny um so you kind of had to make your own entertainment and so we would we would play play the games together and as well as let's just see Larry there was you know Monkey Island there was King's Quest Space Quest uh Day of the Tentacle lots of adventure games 
And so gaming to me was very social before mm. it became social in the way we think about it now. And, you know, I used to exchange games with, um, you know, girlfriends at school, things like the Gabriel Knight games. Um, so it was very, my, my early days were very sort of adventure game based, you know, side scrolling platformers like uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, uh, or isometric games like Head Over Heels, um, weird shit like the rocky horror game which oh, I, I didn't I didn't really I don't know what happened at the end all I remember was you were supposed to find the bits of the rocket but someone kept stealing your clothes and you couldn't <laughs> pick up any bits of the rocket until you'd found your clothes um I was a big fan I was a big uh fan of the movie not not so much of the game yeah. um but yeah so gaming it came into my life very early basically and was there a genre that you discovered that you particularly liked? Because I know that a lot of people only, you know, when they're older, like to stick with one style of game. So either open world or my, my wife loves platformer games. You know, if it's a platformer, she'll play it. But the open world can kind of be a bit intimidating. Did you find that you were being drawn to one style or was it more the story elements? Or what was it that you liked the best about games? I mean, it, it was a great time for adventure games then uh, in, in, you know, I, I did a lot of my growing up in the 80s so it was very good for adventure games it was very good for for fantasy and sci-fi in movies and tv you know had lots of great female-led stuff like Mm -hmm. terminator like aliens like labyrinth um so it was it was a you know a it was full of good content the 80s um and so it was adventure games then because i don't really think there was a huge amount of choice I, i did play the dooms yeah. And my dad was was playing games as well, and he was very into the Dooms. Wolfenstein, the first oh, Wolfenstein yeah. game. Um, like, where, you know, the, I think the word spion is, is etched in the back of my brain somewhere just because <laughs> it would be shouted at you like 11 billion times during the game. <laughs> um, so, that, yeah, the, the Dooms and adventure games mm. um, probably... It, because it was a great time for them and then they sort of drifted off a little bit and they sort of you know had a bit more of a resurgence over the last sort of half a decade or decade or so which is lovely to see it is great well there's so much out now and there's obviously the new generation of consoles which is great because there's so many mm. new games and new sort of ips being made and um, i know you obviously went on to take a more professional interest in gaming i wanted to ask when you first thought about actually taking it seriously as in doing it for for a career and a job and also did you play the early Tomb Raider games during this period and when it first came out or did you come across them a bit further down the line because obviously I know you've been involved with one of the most successful iterations of that. I I played the first Tomb Raider um, and uh, my dad had played it before me I don't know whether he felt he had to play all games before me um, <laughs> just to, like test them out but then he yeah. got excited and spoiled the whole bit with the t-rex and oh, like come on. he was so excited for me to play it um and uh yeah it was it was still great when I got to it but yeah he did rather spoil it a bit and I think he was a big fan um a longer fan than I was I think he played more of two and maybe a little bit of three mm-hmm. and I made my first industry contacts I, I actually um, went to the launch of Tomb Raider 3 at the Natural History Museum as my dad's plus one. And there I made my first Games Industry contact who was sitting at the same table as us, who was Dan Emery, um, who was the reviews editor of uh, a new magazine coming out called PC Gear. And it also had a lot to do with a magazine uh, called PC Zone that I, I really loved. Uh, it's like the, you know, the 
early days of Charlie Brooker came yeah. came from PC Zone. It's actually produced a lot of game writers over the years. Uh, Martin Corder, Mark Hill, Will Porter. Um, you know, lot, lots of successful game writers have come from uh, from PC Zone. And so I ended up doing a little bit of work for PC Gear. And um, at that point, I, tr- I trained as a journalist. I was probably at that time a bit overqualified for a games journalist because not many of them had deg- actual degrees in journalism. And I actually started even earlier than, than uh, PC Gear um, uh, on a, a women's magazine, a magazine called yeah. Minx, which was um, aimed at uh, sort of 18 to 24 year old women. So uh, and they got me to start doing um review work little bits and pieces of review work so it's tiny like 50 word reviews and things so I made some PR contacts at that time and I was getting code in but Dan was the first person who could actually sort of you know give give me work in the sort of bit the bigger game the more meatier yeah. game review space and then um I applied to to work on PC Zone as an editorial assistant and I got the job and I spent a couple of years going around the world you know meeting developers um, you know, seeing how the sausage is made, uh, yeah, just yeah. sort of working out how to, to break down a game, how to sort of look at the different parts, how the, the, the teams operate, how they, they work together. And that was very, very illuminating. And I made some great contacts during that. And those are the contacts that I then used when I came out of full time kind of office based work. And, you know, back into the pajama based lifestyle, which is really, <laughs> I think, all I ever wanted. Um <laughs> And I worked for The Guardian, I worked for The Sunday Times, I worked for Yahoo doing game reviews. And it just so happened that uh, Sven Vinke from Larian Studios got in touch with me and they were looking for um, a native English speaker to help polish up their script for Beyond Divinity. And obviously Larian have gone uh, on uh, from strength to strength with the with the Divinity games. Um, and this is sort of in, in the earlier days and... I did some script polishing. I did a little bit of original content. I, I wrote a, a novella that I think um, all writers are made to read as part of the history of it. And I feel really, I feel really bad because I'm sure it was really terrible because <laughs> it was like my first prose work. Um, but it put me off working on RPGs for for a long time. Yes, I can imagine it did. But it didn't put me on game writing and I didn't really know that's what I was doing when I was doing it because I mm. never met a game writer before. Um, well, as a journalist, no one sat me down and, and said, this is our writer. I, ne- I never yeah. met a me like people were doing the writing, but it wasn't usually what they their, the predominant role was. So they were usually, you know, a, a designer who happened to have some time or a producer yeah, yeah. that kind of wrote stories after work and that sort of thing. It wasn't very common at all for it to be done by a dedicated writer especially a dedicated writer that just works in games um, and so that's kind of the career I started to kick out for myself and I went to my contacts and I literally said hey I'm doing this now <laughs> do you have any work yeah, yeah. and and that sort of actually got me a few you know sm- smallish gigs I mm-hmm. worked on um Stronghold Legends, because I was a big fan of the Stronghold Castle building games. I have a real love of strategy and um, oh, yeah. building games. Um, I don't I, like not so much these days, but when I was younger, I was a real real fan of that because I'd grown up on things like Command and Conquer and Red Alert and uh, and June as well. I loved um, and 
Yeah, so I, I'd, um, you know, I played a lot of those games and I'd met Firefly as part of that. And I also got some work on a SpongeBob game oh, and nice. a Pac-Man game. Um, and it wasn't sort of until I got work on Heavenly Sword that that sort of kicked my career up a few notches and, and put it very firmly in the direction of more cinematic style mm. games. Well, I just remember the hype around the release of that and the, like you say, it was so cinematic, the first trailer. And I think it was in conjunction with, you know, a new generation of of consoles. Mm. And it was just hugely publicised. I think it was one of the first games that was sort of announced for, was it been the PS3? It was the PS3, yeah. 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 It's been a while, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it, it was just, because I remember thinking, gosh, this looks unbelievable um so that was you know being quite a sort of <laughs> a kick up what was the difference between what you were doing before that and then actually being handed the keys to something as big as that the fear and terror increased <laughs> a lot um and i think you know it was really i think the se- only the second game that ninja theory had done and they'd, they'd done i think kung Fu chaos before that which wasn't particularly cinematic so it really was a baptism of fire for everyone and yeah. obviously you know ninja theory have gone on as well from strength to strength on these cinematic style experiences um and yeah it was i was working on the entire script rather than level dialogue or mission dialogue so it was quite a big it was quite a big step up but um it actually helped that i was quite active in the industry and i had um i been I think in the audience for a screenwriting seminar with Tamim and the uh, gentleman giving the screenwriting seminar invited all the game writers out to lunch they didn't pay for the lunch they just were trying to look for work because they were trying to get into games and myself and Tamim took against the uh, the person doing the screenwriting course and we were sitting next to each other and he he kind of was asking everyone what they did and he kind of dismissed us because I was another writer, therefore I was competition. And he hadn't heard of Tamim's studio or Tamim's game. But I had because I read the gaming, I read the industry press and I knew how difficult they'd uh, found it to get a publishing deal for um, for Heavenly Sword. So I chatted to him about it and we sort of slightly bonded over not liking this guy. And then I'd gone to an IGDA lecture that Tam had, had given in London where he was you know, doing a talk specifically about trying to get a publishing deal for Heavenly Sword. And I sort of, you know, came, I'd had a couple of Jack Daniels and Diet Cokes and I was feeling a bit, <laughs> bit you know, bullshit. And so I came up to him and, and said, Do, you know, have you have you found a writer yet? And he said, well, we've gone through one test of writers, haven't really found anyone yet. So we're going to be doing a second test of writers. And I said, well, you know, I've, I've got a bit of experience now. Do you, could you like put me on the list? And he said, sure, sure. And he took my email and I thought, I will never hear from him again. <laughs> and then like three months later, a producer for Sony got in touch and uh, I was given an interview, uh, a kind of audition piece yeah, to do, yeah. which I, I really enjoyed so much. It was in my sample folder oh, for cool. a long time. It was never in the game. It was never really intended to be in the game, but I really enjoyed doing it. And um, uh, I, I got an interview. It was about a four, four and a half hour interview. And they just sort of shuffled people in and out the interview. Like they got different. Some team members went out, some came in, and then they literally went into the corridor into a huddle and then came back in and offered me the job. Oh, nice. I, like, I didn't think it ever happened like that. And I remember like going to the ladies' Lewis afterwards and going into a stall and just going, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah, and so it all it kind of all went for there. It was it was tough. I don't think anyone uh, who worked on Heavy Sword would would say otherwise. It was it was 
pretty tough and it was a real yeah. learning experience for everyone but it you know taught me a lot about cinematic games working with with people like Tamim and like Andy Circus taught me a lot um and you know I could take that forward into kind of other cinematic games like um well yes uh you know the Tomb Raider for sure Mirror's Edge the Overlord Games Viking um and for a while that's quite a lot of what I did very sort of linear cinematic style experiences it's just so interesting to hear that it got kicked up to that uh, next level, like you're saying, but obviously very difficult. I just wanted to know if having reviewed so many games over the course of your career, that that actually meant that you sort of could make sure that certain things that you'd criticised in the past about games didn't make their way into your specific game. Because if people criticise the way a story's written in a game, and then mm. now you're in charge of kind of writing stuff like that, you want to absolutely make sure that you don't do something that you would criticise of yourself if you're reviewing. Well, also, I don't think as a, a reviewer, you really understand how stories are put together and how yeah. difficult it is to get a even a half decent story into a game. Yeah. And I've definitely known journalists who were quite like smug and critical when they were journalists have now gone into game writing or like, oh, right, this is why it's so hard. So it's like, <laughs> yeah, I remember when you when yeah. you were mean about my uh, my game and now yeah, like yeah. you're you're seeing actually how how hard it is. Um, and so I was always a fairly gentle reviewer anyway. I was always just very excited about, you know, all games that I was given, I was given to review. Um, and yeah, it was, I, I think it just helped me think about the game as a whole. Um, and I kind of understood about a little bit about game design. And that's something that I picked up almost by osmosis over the years, um, particularly level design and, and level dressing in that, you know, uh, environmental narrative and things like that. So I think it helped um, a bit in thinking about games as a whole and, and all their different parts, but also for contacts, really. Uh, it, it was great for that. And, you know, I came from the gaming press where you you got a magazine printed at the end, at every month. And that's, pretty rare these these days and I sort of watched the death of games magazines we've got a couple around but there were so many when uh, when I started out and you know there's certainly the London-based ones paid a decent wage now it's like it's one area that's just gone you know down and down and down um so I don't envy games journalists coming up trying trying to get work there are more outlets but there there are more people competing for these spaces and you know it's it's very badly paid yes certainly is compared to what it was and and when you were reviewing those games just at this point I wanted to ask did you review any of them really badly or just even a little bit badly because it sounds like you were quite generous with your scoring were there any that you didn't like at all like you you just hated (sighs) I don't think there was any I I kind of downright hated. Mm. Um, Just more like I specific think, elements, I'm guessing. Yeah, I mean, I can't I can't remember like ones that that um, jumped out at me that I really hated. Um, I you know I remember the ones that I really I really enjoyed. Uh, I, I really enjoyed um, Divine Divinity, which I think is why Sven remembered me because <laughs> I'd been the most enthusiastic journalist in the UK about Divine Divinity. Um, and I think more, I was more in line with the American press who were also very excited about divine ability, uh, <laughs> where the, the rest of the U, UK press were, were a little bit more, a little cooler about it. And I was just, you know, I, I you know, had little elements of humor in which I was kind of excited to see. And I, I saw something there. And obviously I'm right because Larry <laughs> and Agar, you know, look at them now. Yes. Um, and 
So, yeah, I think that that kind of definitely helps. And with the the SpongeBob game and the Pac-Man game, also linked to a game that I'd really liked that the the rest of the UK press hadn't, which was called Ghostmaster. And it was basically you were a otherworldly civil servant sending out ghosts to haunt places and to rescue other ghosts that were trapped. Um, And like, it was, I thought it was genius. And it was done by an Oxford based studio that no longer exists called Sick Puppies. And the guy that had done a lot of design and script work on it, um, uh, Chris Bateman, who runs a design and writing um, agency called International Hobo. I think I joined their website because um, they had a, a, a forum to, for Ghostmaster. He recognized my name because he'd, in fact, worked on Discworld Noir. I had no idea yeah. about this. I had no I had no dealings with Discworld Noir or aside from um, playing some of Discworld games. I played the first one and two, not so much of the third. And I think he'd recognised my name and I got a little bit of work through his studio because he would freelance work out to other writers. So it wasn't mm. glamorous stuff, but it, it sort of it taught me the ropes and got me some credits. And, that, and that's very important when you're starting out. I've got to ask you, do you think that the uh, vehicle and the format of video games lends itself quite well to uh, Discworld? Because it's kind of you can almost do anything within it, can't you? So I guess it, it, if you do it right, you can do it ex- extremely well. It it does, but Discworld has a very specific tone. And yes. it's finding uh, you know, a studio that can get that tone and like the, the kind of gameplay that suits that tone. I think I think adventure game gameplay does. And you know, the the particularly the first two, and I know the third third one is very still very highly regarded, mm. and it had its own cool little gameplay techniques like sort of seeing seeing smells and things as a werewolf. Um, but I have a fondness for the the first two games in particular because they were so obscure. Like <laughs> I wouldn't say this one itself is that obscure, but they took some of the small elements and made them massively obscure like love custard and um i know there was some puzzle which involved you feeding love custard to a sheep and i can't remember why um and i think with one of them if you pause the game too long rincewind would come and knock on your screen and i that was like a uh, genius and eric idle you know voiced him so well um so i think that they were they were a lot of fun but it's actually we actually don't know who owns the rights anymore. So we're always asked, like, why don't you put them on on Gog or, or Night Dive or something like that? But we don't know who owns the rights. We own the characters, but we can't put yeah. a game out because, you yeah, know, there's code, there's art, there's voice acting, there's yeah. things like that. But so many studios were kind of bought and sold over the years. We don't know who owns it anymore. And I'm not even sure whoever owns it knows that they own it. Yeah, yeah. It's. Um, I want to come on to uh, Lara Croft and, and characters in games because they're obviously hugely important. Uh, but before we come on to that, is there a character in particular that you just really love or maybe identify with or, or you know, favourite character from a game? Because before people have just said things like Mario because they find the energy of Mario quite exciting. Is there one character that you love or maybe even would lo- just like to be? I really loved Alex in uh, the Half-Life games, particularly oh, yes. in the episodes, uh, because she's sort of a la- when I can't remember, it's a, I think it's the first episode uh, or maybe this uh, the second. I think she's in both of them. But there's one that I always remember where you're going along with her together 
and she makes a noise like a zombie and it's and then laughs and it's so it's such a good fake zombie noise and then uh, and then laughs and it really it threw me and I thought that that is a beautiful little moment um and so I really yeah I have a lot of love for Alex um and I, I have a lot of love for Astrid in uh, The Long Dark, which uh, we'll probably come on to because it's a game I play a lot. So I listen to Astrid's voice, who is voiced by Jennifer Hale, a lot. And she talks a lot because to play The Long Dark on interloper mode, which is the hardest mode successfully, you have to keep your character just from starving. So I hear Jen- uh, Jennifer Hale grumbling at me about being hungry and wanting to <laughs> eat trees. And, you know, she could eat a horse, which is saying something because she loves horses and like constantly over and over again. So I've got I've I've managed to like I, I really like the story modes on on uh, the long dark, too. And I had a lot of fun with those. Um, but I, I get sucked into the playing the interloper survival mode. And I love survival games. Um, they are uh, the games where I find my dad. Um, even though we never played survival games together, we lived in rural Somerset. He would take me walking in the, on the woods or the moors and things to show me like the plants and, and berries and stuff that, are, that were edible. And I, I was sort of fantasized about getting lost in the woods or building a, a home in the woods and things because a lot of children's books were about kids just deciding they'd had enough of the world or adults and just moving to a mountain or the middle of a woods or a, a living life there. And I always thought that was wonderful. And so um, I always, uh, you know, I sometimes say on Twitter, you know, ghost dad in my head is making me play this. And sometimes it's things like the forest. Sometimes it's things like the long dark or among trees. And I, you know, I I hear him as I play. And, you know, it it comes down to very small little things. Like there's a bird noise in the long dark that reminds me of my dad because I know he would make fun of it and do a little version himself and I I hear it in my head and every time that bird makes a noise I think of my dad um and yeah it's it's a very weird tenuous connection but that's sort of where I find him because I think he would have he would have loved those games as well and sometimes I feel him nudging me towards a certain game that he would enjoy i've got to ask you at this point then if you have a favorite of all time or if there's a game that you just i mean it sounds like you go back to play certain games again and again particularly survival but is there one that you would hold up and say do you know what it did everything right and it's got replayability and all the rest of it does anything stand out to you well i mean i guess replayability the long dark um Mm -hmm. is probably the one i played the most uh it's still i find it quite infuriating at times but it's more me <laughs> that I find infuriating like <laughs> how how I die and like, I, I keep trying to get uh to 500 days in interloper which is my, my sort of personal quest and it's so hard it's I've got to 289 awesome. um, <laughs> and like you you spend a lot of time being quite bored um and and then you kind of do silly things and take risks. And that's where I kind of fall over. And um, yeah, and it's so it, I always get very frustrated. And it's always it's always damn wolves, damn wolves that get me like the bears. I've, I've you know got a system for, but <laughs> I, I always try and outrun the wolves sometimes. And it, I've always just misjudged it or I don't I, I now like I have rules for myself. It's like, you know, if a wolf is coming after you and you don't you don't think you can get away 
you know, hard crit out, go back to your last stage. It's not worth it. It doesn't matter if you're <laughs> hauling loads of meat. It's not worth it. Like, you know, they're, they're, they're so um, violent in the game that it just doesn't matter. Or if you've got the bow and arrow, t- take the shot. Don't try and run. Take, try and take the shot because you might just scare it. And I always tend to be a bit conservative with, with my arrows. Um, so I have... I've got a lot of love for for the long dark. Um, But yeah, you're right. I have a lot of cozy blanket games. So sometimes Mm. I would rather go back and play an older game than try a newer one. I love Um, it when they remaster. There's a lot of remasters nowadays, and it's a really great way of obviously bringing in people who've never played them. But if you played the original and you love it and it's your, you know, your kind of game, when they remake it and it's with modern day graphics and all the rest, it's just so amazing. I love it. Well, I, I still actually play Age of Mythology online. Oh, um, right. And I used to play that when it sort of first came out, when it was on disc. And there was, for, for a long time, there's only one uh, edition of the discs where the the disc uh, worked properly with the multiplayer. And it was like the, the Titan Treasure Chest edition. And you got the disc and it would work. And it would work. And I would play it so much that I would eventually break the disc to free myself <laughs> from it. But now it's online. Now it's you can't do that. I, like, I can't do that. So I've ha- I've just actually had to learn how to regulate myself. And I still I, I still do play it, um, you know, once or twice a day. Uh, and it, I find it a good a good starter in the mornings, like make a yeah. cup of coffee, play a game of Asian mythology. Um, I am generally not sure I am any. I think I'm very slightly better than I used to be, but it's very sporty for me. Like sometimes I'm just utter shit and other times i am on fire and it's like i don't understand like the difference or, like what what is happening in my head that i do it playing it so well or what is happening when i'm playing it so badly but um yeah i still i still play that online i still love dungeon keeper 2 oh, i love yeah i love playing the uh the uh bioshocks chaining the bioshocks yeah uh, i'm just doing that now because they've just remastered them again i think they've, yeah so yeah, one, two, Minerva's Den and and uh, Infinite and the um uh the the Infinite chapters as well that came mm. afterwards. Um, ooh, what else is there? Uh, well, half uh, Half Life Two in the episodes is is always good. I've not played that for a while. I think I might give that a go. But um, yeah, the, the Thief One and Two is always good. Um, so I, yeah, the older games I've got I've still got a lot of love for. So it's it's um it's new I, I find it much yeah as I say much easier to go back to them and you know I'm always very proud of myself when I, I find a newish game and I, I actually you know download it round about the time it comes out and can complete it um Un- Unavowed was one that I played on the day it came out and finished and I, I really enjoyed that because it was very old it's quite old school click and point mm-hmm. it was like a lot, a lot of stuff I grew up with um, I think Wadget Eye Games are doing some brilliant stuff in, in the adventure game space. Unpacking uh, was really good. Uh, for, you know, environmental narrative. I think it's a masterclass environmental narrative um, and how to communicate uh, character through environment and space and lack of space. Yeah, um, yeah. And so that that was sort of a, a lovely distraction for a few hours for me. Uh, I want to come on to um, Lara Croft and Team Radio because... Uh, as kind of as, as games go that are I, well I, I just know from personal experience and my wife's experience that that got her into a genre of games that she perhaps wouldn't have been interested in otherwise she's not a huge fan of 
you know, story driven, but also having a kind of slightly more open world games than perhaps what she's used to, certainly. Uh, but she played Tomb Raider as a kid. And then this mm. new sort of all singing, all dancing, cinematic, well, amazing story came out and drew her in and, and drew me in. Um, I imagine that being behind the scenes of that was, I mean, if, if Heavenly Sword was hard work, that must have been even <laughs> more hard work, surely. Well, I, I think it was hard work for different reasons. Yeah. Um, I think with Heavenly Sword, we were all quite new to it. So we we're all kind of learning together, but we we're also using a lot of you know, top acting talent. Andy Circus is a dramatic director. There were a lot of uh, chefs in the kitchen, yeah. uh, creative chefs in the kitchen. And on Tomb Raider, um, I think there was, we didn't get the weight of expectation with one uh, that we did with Rise. Like Rise in some ways was harder than yeah. Tomb Raider. You think it would, wouldn't be? It's because, yeah, there, there was some expectation, but no one quite knew what to expect. Yeah. Um, there are also there are obviously a few controversies along the way, which I hope we had to deal with. And um, but basically, it was, it was written by myself and John Stafford, so it was a very small team. Um, I was sort of on it for for a couple of years. Um, I had a really nice working relationship with Crystal, and I would go over there for a few weeks at a time to work work at the studio. Um, and that was great. They gave me my own office. Uh, well, once they gave me my own <laughs> office, which was very exciting. Um, and yeah, so it was, it was tough in different ways. I think, you know, Crystal hadn't done such a cinematic game like, like this before. Um, and so it was a sort of learning experience for them, but probably not as big as the one for, for Ninja Theory. And there was some expectation. I think it, it got much more with the, with the second game um, because obviously Square Enix had, had um uh but idos and that we they decided um to open up the script early on for feedback because we'd had an issue with the first game script where um gameplay kept making me kill characters <laughs> uh, so the script had you know there was a, f- a few drafts in i think and they want me to kill a character for gameplay reasons like they wanted lara to go over here and and you know maybe it wouldn't work out for some reason and so I had to do death drafts where I would go in and kill off a character and remove them. And I did this a couple of times. And we sort of realized quite late in the day that tonally this had changed the, the script. Um, and so we originally had more of a down ending, which didn't feel quite so bad because it hadn't been this relentless cavalcade of death. <laughs> and then we sort of realized, oh, no, like this is players are going to feel absolutely terrible at the end of this. <laughs> Uh, so we actually had to change the ending. So I think we we opened up the script early on to try and make sure anything like that was was dealt with a little bit earlier on. But that meant it was like a continual headwind of feedback mm. the entire time. So you had um, feedback from the team, you had uh, in you know external consultants, you had Square Enix, you had Microsoft, um, you had a, like five or six different levels of people giving feedback most of which don't deal with story a lot. And so there's a lot of feedback that's contradictory uh, and just, you know, wasn't useful. And, you know, some of it was, and it was like, what? It was so, as a writer, it's really brutal because when you're writing a mm. film script or a TV script, you're usually working with maybe a couple of producers who are very well-versed in storytelling. They give very targeted feedback. Um, and it's, it's a sort of, 
gentler process but this was like you, you know just uh, it felt like sort of opening up your wrists and and just like you know bleeding everywhere like it was it felt so raw yeah. um dealing with it all uh, and I so I think the first game has a bit more heart Mm. but it's less polished and I think that the second one is, is more polished because of that but I, I'm, I'm not sure if it had the heart as much of the heart as the first one did I think the the first one will always be very special to me and you know I, I really enjoyed working on Rise as well because we expanded the team uh, we had Cameron Sui as a, another narrative designer and Philip Gallette as, a, as another writer and that was that was um, really really nice to have more of a writer's room kind of a vibe like that's a lot more common these days it wasn't mm. when I started out you know there are games that I worked on where I was the only writer like I wrote all the overall games everything you know even down to you know weapon text and and, and things like that uh you know generally everything that involved writing uh and that's not really the case anymore you know often you'll have writers that one is handling the cinematic story or maybe when one is doing barks maybe one is doing level dialogue uh, and things like that so it's more of a um team sport than, than it used to be and you get that support from other writers which shouldn't really exist growing up in the industry growing up in the industry <laughs> yeah. um, and just finally i wanted to ask about some of your more recent projects and and what you're looking for next because i know you did um a, a smaller sort of independent game uh, very recently, um, which was actually very creative and artistic and had the words were kind of involved in the actual gameplay and stuff like that, which was really beautiful to watch. Um, it, are you, I suppose you just do what comes, I guess. How does it, how does hmm. it work when you're looking for new projects? Yeah, it's, it's what, whatever comes along and piques my interest really. Like wherever I think that there's an angle that there's an interesting angle, the game has something to say for itself um, and I, that's something I'm looking for a lot more. It's like games that have something to say for themselves. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've done a lot of high, you know, high octane, high adrenaline sort of uh, first person and third person shooters. And now I'm a bit like I enjoy them as a player, but as a writer, mm. I want to find the, the the path less travelled and the, the stories, um, you, you know, the stories less less told, I guess. Um, and yeah, Lost Words was great. And I was involved in it for, for many, many years, actually, from 2014 was when I first met Mark Backler. Um, and because I was an, uh, you know early in the team, I got to have quite a say in, in the narrative of it and how it was shaped and how gameplay and narrative intersected. And, you know, I think I learned a lot about gameplay and level design during that experience. Um, and that was sort of very rewarding to do. And I've been very lucky that, I've been able to work across the spectrum from like big AAA shiny stuff down to you know mobile games like Rival Kingdoms and, and indie games like Beat Buddy or or um or Lost Words. So I I like sort of I just go where the interesting things are. Um and I, I you know I work in other mediums as well. So I, I do a, a fair bit of film and TV work, or at least I did before the pandemic started yeah, well, and then exactly. it really then it sort of paused that quite a bit. So I ended up doing more game stuff during the pandemic because it was a little bit more, I think it was more resistant. And, you know, game writers are used, usually work from home anyway, um, if they're, they're freelance like me. Uh, so I, I wrote a single player story for Surgeon Simulator 2, which oh, was cool. an unusual project. And, you know, not the kind of game you think lends itself to the story. So that was kind of a challenge and it was sort of, like you know very lightly portal-esque type of story um and I 
I wrote a, a TTRPG called Bard Sung. Um, I had a, a, a fighting fantasy book out called Crystal of Storms last year, the first woman to write a fighting fantasy book. Um, and another book out uh, in October called uh, Campaigns and Companions, which is about, it's a, a kind of jokey art book about pets playing D- Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> um, and I started that during the pandemic as well. So the pandemic has brought lots of unusual yeah. projects across like the, the creative space my way. Well, Surgeon Simulator is going to say too, having a story in that game must be quite tough because it's more like a sandbox, isn't it? It is quite tough, and especially as you couldn't actually ever see any characters. <laughs> um, everything was done by voice, so it was like it was quite challenging. And I like finding those those challenging those challenges and, and yeah. um, stuff I've not done before. Uh, and I've done a lot of stuff, so it becomes yeah, harder. <laughs> find those challenges but again I think developers are also looking for those challenges as well so we are you know seeing more original stuff coming out and we've seen the indie space just really flourish in the last 10 years and some some brilliant stuff coming out from there just final question are you a ps5 pc xbox switch or none of the above gamer what would you describe yourself as I, I would probably um I probably call myself a PC gamer. I mean, that's yeah. where that's where I come from. It's where I play a lot of my games at the moment uh, because I I was living in a flat for for a while, several flats in in the sort of between uh, uh, breaking up with my ex boyfriend and and actually moving into my own house. I went into several flats, and then I was much more like PS4 mm. uh, because I didn't have a, a, a proper desktop PC. When I I got my own home and a desktop PC, I was like back to to being a PC gamer. I do have a PS5. I play a little bit on the PS5. I play a little bit on the Switch. Mm-hmm. Um, I, it just sort of depends on the game. I played a lot of uh, Left 4 Dead on, on the Xbox oh, and then Far Cry on the Xbox. It sort of depends. It depends a lot on the environment I'm in. But if I've got enough space, then I tend to go for PC gaming because... I work on my PC and I, I like sort of, okay, now I'm going to do a bit of work. Now I'm going to play some Age of Mythology yeah, yeah, and, yeah. you know, all that. Now I'm going to play a little bit of Long Dark and I'm just going to try and get a deer down so I can, I know I've got some meat in, in the bag. And, um, yeah, so I'm always juggling different uh, stimuli and yeah, the, PC, yeah. the PC is very good for that. I guess it works as a creative, doesn't it? Because you can dip in and out yeah. when you like. Yeah. Well, thank I'm, you so I'm, much. I'm <laughs> no, <God>. Very <laughs> dippy. I'm, yeah, I'm, I... <laughs> I am just one of those writers that just okay. I've got I got like a film going on my on my iPad, and I, I'm having a conversation on my phone, and then I've got like a game going in the background, and then I've got various web pages open, and I've got some writing. So there's a lot, always a lot of things happening at the same time. Well, thank you so much for talking to us uh, and sharing with us your Monkey Island discs. Oh, you're very welcome. Well, that's it. Find us online at Naked Gaming Pod, and we'll return next month. Oh,